Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Given the craziness of the last couple years, we're kind of making it our mission right now to bring you more stories about joy. Californians finding their passions and creating connections, lifting up their communities. Well, this week, we've got a special treat for you. A couple months ago, KQED culture reporter Chloe Veltman headed out with some friends to a restaurant in the Sonoma County town of Guerneville. And there was this cover band playing called Susie's Last Resort. Chloe was blown away by how charismatic and fun the group was and got even more excited when she learned about the woman behind the music, how she started her showbiz career when she was pushing 40, and now at nearly 80, she's still at it. Chloe knew she had to track the band leader down and bottle her magic. We're going to let you hear some Beatles right now. Some dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Oldies aren't really my jam, but that night at the Main Street Bistro where I first experienced Susie's Last Resort, I just couldn't help myself. The band was tight, they had coordinated dance moves and coordinated red sparkly outfits. I found it impossible not to bop along. Securing a meeting with the woman responsible for that memorable night took a little while. Jane Sorensen has a lot going on. But a few weeks ago, I managed to connect with her at her bass player's airy, knick-knack-filled garage in Santa Rosa. This is where we rehearse at their home. The petite, smiling 78-year-old rocked hip purple highlights in her pixie-cut grey hair. She tells me her passion for singing goes back to when she was a girl growing up in small-town Pennsylvania in the 1940s and 50s. When I was really young, my mom said I sang all the World War II songs. Like what? Uh, like bell-bottom trousers well, and bell-bottom trousers, blue. coat of navy blue. She loved a sailor boy and he loved her too. And then all the romantic songs from that era. Jane says she dreamt about singing professionally, maybe even on Broadway. So at the age of 11, Jane went along with her parents to see a voice coach for advice. And they said, does she have any talent? And, and so I did some singing for him and he said, unfortunately, no, she does not have any talent. When an adult tells a kid they can't sing, the kid usually stops doing it. Child development experts have been warning against this for years because it can mess with a person's self-esteem and confidence long term. But somehow, the criticism, though crushing, didn't cramp Jane's style. Nonetheless, I kept singing to myself. She took to singing along to the radio in her car, mostly harmonies. And so that's how I trained myself to sing backups, which I must tell you is more difficult than singing leads. 
In the 1960s, she flew across the country to start a new life in California. She was a trained nurse and got a job in a psychiatric unit in Santa Rosa. Then, one day in the early 80s, Jane's in the nurse's station, filling out her end-of-shift charts as usual, when the radio starts playing one of her favourite songs. The Shirelles, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and I start singing. But the next thing I know, someone is singing behind me in a harmony part. Jane turns around and sees it's one of her colleagues from the ward. And then there's a third voice and a fourth. Now there's a quartet of hospital workers singing in four-part harmony, completely off the cuff. And so we have this little chorus. Just then, a male colleague walks by and said, oh, it's the Pointless Sisters. I'm so excited. You know, making a joke about we're not the Pointer Sisters, we're just the Pointless Sisters. And we said, yeah, right, we are, and we're pretty good. Little did that wisecracking colleague know how seriously Jane would take his joke. So I said, how about we get together and do something with this? Oh, sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. And thus the Pointless Sisters were born. Oh, by the way, that's not Jane's voice. She prefers to sing harmonies. The original lineup consisted of three psych ward techs and a nurse, plus, after about 18 months, a backing band led by one of Jane's medical interns. That I believe, I really do believe it wasn't long before they started performing occasional benefit gigs around Sonoma County to raise money for causes like the AIDS crisis. Jane says it was exciting to get to sing on stage in public instead of in her car just to herself. It was a dream. It was really a dream when I look back at those days. Even so, right from the start, Jane faced setbacks. The first one came after just a few shows, when the sisters' backing band quit. And then finally um, they got tired of us. <laughs> so the, band the band did and they moved on. People left. The singers went their separate ways, but Jane wasn't ready to give up. She found new vocalists, and deciding she didn't need a band, she bought backing tracks from a local karaoke studio, loaded them onto cassette tapes, and started gigging again. Just the singers and a boombox. We didn't have CDs yet, so when you started the cassette tape, you know, you couldn't say, well, let's jump to this song or that one. No, you had to keep going. Eventually, the sisters managed to find a great new live band to play with, the Simplistics. Their charismatic leader, who passed away in 2006, went by the stage name of Muddy Rivers. Jane says they got to open for some well-known musical acts like The Drifters. That was big time for us. Unfortunately, Jane says Muddy wasn't very reliable. He had a tendency to treat the singers like amateurs. Muddy, that I, I love him so much, but when it came to paying the singers, there was no money left. When the vocalists eventually started to receive their long overdue checks, there was a big problem. They all bounced and that was it. Jane says she and the singers walked. And much to Jane's surprise, to say nothing of Muddy's, so did all of the instrumentalists. They said, yes, we're going to support the women in this band. So his whole band followed me. It was the mid-1990s. 
Jane was now fully in charge of a professional show band, as well as singing in it. Plus, she was raising her two sons and working a full-time job at the hospital. She says running a psych ward made her uniquely qualified to manage a group of musicians. Having a background in mental health, particularly on a locked psych unit for all those years, really prepares me to lead a band. <laughs> Musicians who've worked with Jane over the years say the band leader has always done right by the band. Vocalist Kathy Slack joined the Pointless Sisters 12 years ago. She would and she has done it for no money. She will forego her compensation to make sure that the rest of the band gets compensated in a fair manner. She also admires Jane's professionalism and powers of organisation. January she had to do all the 1099s and, and she's got to herd all of us kittens. After our get-together in Santa Rosa, Jane shared with me how her musical activities took a toll on her family life. Looking back, she wrote in an email, I have regrets about how I balanced both jobs and family responsibilities. Neither of Jane's grown-up children wanted to be interviewed for this story. Her husband, John Sorensen, says he realised early on in their marriage that he'd have to go along with his wife's musical ambitions. So he became her sound engineer. It was either going to get on board or the train was going to leave without me kind of thing. So Jane has a way of rallying people. Like the time when local restaurateur and music promoter Susie Veery was in the middle of a musical emergency. It was a spring morning in 2021 and a band was scheduled to appear at the venue Susie owns, the Main Street Bistro in Guerneville. After three musicians tested positive for COVID, they had to cancel just hours before showtime. And having something last minute, especially if it's a full band, is almost impossible to find. I'd be lucky to get a guy coming in here to play guitar. Susie was desperate, and Jane was on her list of local musical contacts, so she gave her a call. I was just so thrilled that they said, well, let me see what I can do. Somehow, Jane managed to rustle up a handful of her colleagues from the Pointless Sisters to perform at the Main Street Bistro at just a few hours' notice. And when her guitarist went up to the mic and introduced the band as the Pointless Sisters, Jane thought she'd have a bit of fun. It had been a mad day. So I get to the microphone and said, well, we're not the Pointless Sisters. We are um, Susie's last resort. Susie was tickled by the band's name. She says the show was a hit. And they came in and they just blew the house down. Everybody just loved them and I have them as regulars now. And Jane decided to launch Susie's Last Resort as a new band, a more compact version of the Pointless Sisters, if you will. Today, Jane manages and performs with both the Pointless Sisters and Susie's Last Resort. Over the years, she's seen many musicians come and go. Some have passed away. Of the original Sisters lineup, Jane says she's the only one left. Both Judy and Elizabeth passed on from cancer years ago. Cindy died too, she was in an accident. In my house I have photos of them everywhere, memories, and I loved them so much. We were really close, we had so much fun. The COVID-19 pandemic was one of the roughest periods Jane's faced in her long showbiz career. Many venues her bands normally played shut down. She and several other musicians got sick. The pandemic really threw us for a horrible loop. In 2020, I had 56 
gigs on the books. We did one. And then in 2021, when vaccines offered the opportunity for live music to start up again. There were also some reluctant uh, vaxxers in my band. And uh, I had to, I couldn't really deal with that. In recent months, she's been working on getting the schedule filled again. It's been tough to find musicians and venues for all the gigs she'd like to book. I just cancelled the 21st of May because I couldn't get a guitar player. But figuring out this stuff is just part of the deal for this go-getting band leader. And she's showing no signs of slowing down. Besides managing and performing in two bands, Jane sings in a third. She also runs a private counselling practice and volunteers every week for a pet loss support group. And it's a wonderful group. I've been doing it for 32 years every week. <laughs> Though she's technically retired from her longtime job as a psych ward nurse for Sonoma County Mental Health, she keeps her nursing licence active too, just in case. Jane's mom lived to over 100, so she feels like she still has plenty of musical years ahead. And I'm just a girl when she was 11 was told, forget it, who's just like trying to bring this all together and make people smile and laugh and have fun. That's the success of a band. If you have a dance floor full of people who are happy, you know, you did it. You, that's what you want to do. That's why we do it. Susie's Last Resort plays at the Main Street Bistro in Guerneville once a month, usually on Sundays. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. Turning 21 can be a big deal. It's a reason to celebrate, right? You're finally an adult. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Andy! But for some people, in fact, 200,000 young people here in the U.S., turning 21 catapults them into this bizarre kind of legal limbo. That's what happened to Eti Sinha and her sister, Eva. Yes, yeah, we're twins. <laughs> One minute apart, to be exact. The Sinha sisters grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. But as they got older, they discovered their right to stay here in California was conditional, temporary. That's because they've aged out of their parents' family immigration application. That's a system that's just so messed up. It's extremely difficult to keep having more and more obstacles in your way just to continue a life in the only place I call home. So what do you do when circumstances beyond your control threaten to force you out of the only place you've ever called home? KQED's Rachel Myro of our Silicon Valley desk tells us how Etty and Eva have had to fight to stay and how they're helping others caught in the same limbo. Etty and Eva Sinha were seven years old when they moved with their mom from New Delhi to San Francisco. We learned how to ride our bikes in Golongi Park. Um, we loved eating all, like, the Asian food in San Francisco and Bay Area. Just, just children growing up in the Bay. They joined their dad, who was studying to transition out of his first career in the oil industry. Now he runs his own Silicon Valley consulting firm, and Mom is the director of admissions at a local university. In time for middle school, the girls' family moved to the suburbs, Fremont, in the East Bay, where they did all the things you do growing up in Fremont. 
Yeah, so we went to Centerville Middle School and Irvington High School. We hiked Mission Peak during lunch breaks. Um, since it was an open campus, you would rush over to 7-Eleven, grab some taquitos, and rush back to uh, campus before class started. Eva was president of the French club. I was secretary of the French club. We never really felt out of place. We had a lot of other friends um, who were immigrants, either second and third generation immigrants. And I had quite a few friends who were immigrants themselves who came in elementary school along with their parents. But there was a critical difference between them and most of their friends. Eva and Eti's presence in this country was conditional temporary and set to expire when they turned 21. They were dependents, riding on their dad's temporary visa status and later his family's application for a green card for the right to live and work in the U.S. more or less indefinitely. Most of my friends had gotten their green card by the time they were in high school. That's what their parents expected would happen for them. That was a big part of the reason why their family moved here from New Delhi. But just after they arrived, a backlog started to develop in Washington, D.C. because of a bizarre quota system set in place back in 1991. Every single country gets the same percentage of green cards given out in any one year. No more than 7% of the total in any given year goes to applicants from any one country, whether you're from Albania or Zimbabwe or anything in between. But of course, there are way more people from India and China applying, especially so they can work in Silicon Valley. So starting in the early aughts, year after year, the line got longer and longer and longer. Our parents applied in 2011 when we were in middle school. You know, they still don't have their green card today. So in high school, we really realized, okay, as much as our experiences are similar to our peers, we actually have the same amount of opportunity. It only dawned on the Sinha sisters in high school that their green cards might not arrive in time for college, that they might turn 21 while in college and suddenly switch from dependent to adult. Suddenly, they would become ineligible for everything from in-state tuition at a public school to all kinds of grants and loans. I couldn't help but ask the Sinha sisters if they blame their parents. Eva said no. They've paid all their taxes. They've come here with the status. They've maintained their statuses, made sure that they're not, you know, they're following all the rules. And, you know, once their turn in line comes up, they would get their green card. It's just there's a backlog. They found a way forward. They both found a way to convince their respective financial aid departments at UC Santa Barbara and San Diego to let them pay the lower in-state tuition all the way through, even though they were both going to become international students in a few years. And while their 21st birthdays were a reason to celebrate... Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Andy! That day also marked a turning point. According to the federal government, they were now on their own. Foreign nationals who needed to apply for temporary visas to stay in the U.S. legally. Which is exactly what they've done. After they graduated cum laude, both of them, Eti and Eva became experts on the visa system here in the U.S. Eti's on an F-1 now, an academic visa. I am a PhD student at Cornell University in New York, studying biomedical engineering. Eva's employer sponsored her for an H-1B, the most common in Silicon Valley. 
I currently um, work as a financial analyst in San Francisco. That H-1B is temporary, of course. Six years since I got it in 2020, so 2026. Got that? She's only good to stay in the U.S. until 2026, unless her employer applies for a renewal or a green card, or she returns to her quote-unquote home country, a country she's visited but doesn't consider home. Hopefully my employer will apply for a green card for me, but I don't know. The current estimate is like 80 plus years. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 80 plus years. They laugh, but 80 plus years, with the threat of deportation to India hanging over their heads. We are, like, as American, as people who are American citizens, we grew up here. We want to continue our lives here. We want to contribute to the American economy here. Everybody else perceives us as American as well, from our peers to my, like, managers, etc. I think we're American every way but on paper. It's so obvious to everyone, but for some reason, not the U.S. government. After Eti graduates, she'll have to do the same thing as Eva, find an employer to sponsor her for an H-1B, and then a green card. Essentially, they're both hopscotching from one temporary visa to another to stay in this country. There's a name for this dilemma, for what Eti and Eva have become. Today, I'm representing over 40,000 documented dreamers in the state of California. Documented dreamers. At a recent committee hearing in Sacramento, Eva testified on behalf of a bill put forward by State Senator Maria Elena Durazo of Los Angeles. Senate Bill 1160 will allow dependent visa students that meet existing eligibility requirements to pay in-state tuition at California's public colleges and universities. This bill isn't for the Sinha sisters. It's for the students, the documented dreamers, coming after them. Even though SB 1160 can't address federal immigration law, it can make the cost of a college education in California a little bit more feasible. And that's good enough for Eva today. At age seven, I immigrated with my family alongside my twin sister from India to San Francisco. Growing up in the street... Doing it piece by piece, at least we can get some movement going. Having one big legislation, which will definitely solve everything, and the way that our government is designed is just going to take forever. But there are bills moving at the federal level in Washington, D.C., designed to help more than 200,000 documented dreamers in the U.S., most of them Asian, roughly 70 percent Indian, ahead of more comprehensive reform. Good afternoon, everybody. I call to order this hearing of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration, Citizenship, and Border Safety. U.S. Senator Alex Padilla co-sponsored the America's Children Act, backed by the group Eva and Etty became involved with, an advocacy group called Improve the Dream. The America's Children Act would allow dependent visa holders to maintain their status even after they turn 21. No more fear of a wait time for a green card that lasts for decades. The term wait time for many, is actually a cruel misnomer. For applicants from some countries, the wait time is literally longer than any human's life expectancy. These aren't wait times. They are de facto bans. But even though the America's Children Act is targeted to help a small group of people who enjoy bipartisan support, the bill's future is murky. 
David Beer is a research fellow with the Cato Institute. These are people who grew up feeling like Americans, and they are in the same position their parents are in, um, trying to go through a lottery to win an H-1B visa, to be able to get in a backlog for a green card that has no end. It's not a good immigration system for anyone. But Beer says lawmakers on the right and the left have doubts about peeling off even the most agreed-upon partial solution. It's just too iffy in an election year. Even the Biden administration is curiously silent about documented dreamers. It just seems like they're so afraid of bringing up the word immigration. And so the Sinha sisters keep advocating for legal change, mentoring young people in the same situation, and trying to move forward with their lives while holding on to their dream of a future here, in the only place they call home. For The California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. We've got a really special documentary coming up on our show next week from the California Report's intern, Izzy Bloom. It's all about what happens when you don't speak your heritage language. That's the language your parents or your grandparents spoke. Like a lot of us who are multiracial, Izzy gets asked all the time why she doesn't speak her heritage language, Japanese. And the answer is complicated. My mom, Yasuko, immigrated to the U.S. from Japan 34 years ago when she married my dad, who's white. She told me she'd always planned to raise her children bilingual. I worry about my kids doesn't understand who I am, what I really meant. Not only linguistically, it's just as a, as a person. I did worry about if, I, if, you, if my kids doesn't understand the Japanese, maybe... Never gave really know me. When my older brother Max was born in 1994, my mom spoke to him exclusively in Japanese. She really loved holding Max and singing Japanese lullabies to him. I carrying around and walking around the house and very calm, and I singing, uh, singing, you know, the song, and I, and I, he. He sleeps. My mom talked to Max in Japanese, while my dad spoke to him in English. But when he was three, Max was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called Prader-Willi syndrome, which can cause insatiable hunger, physical challenges, and delayed speech. What was it like to find out about Max when you got the diagnosis? Wow, um, the feeling, I still don't forget it. The kind of the feeling you never felt before. After he was diagnosed, Max's pediatrician told our parents that if they wanted Max to learn English, it would have to be English only. And so when I was born five years after Max, it was just too complicated for my mom to only speak to one child in Japanese. So years later, I went on a quest to find out if the recommendations my parents got from Max's doctors were based in science. Is it detrimental to raise a kid like Max in a bilingual household? 
Tune in next week to hear Izzy's answer to that question and what she discovers about her own family along the way. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And our team also includes Amanda Font, Amy Mayer, and Izzy Bloom. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.